2 Samuel chapter 14. Let's start at verse 21 this morning. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Let's start in verse 21. It says, The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay honor, or to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Jump with me to verse 28. It says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Verse 31, Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have you come from Geshur? It would have been better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. Verse 33, so Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this moment that we have to sit and receive it. We pray that you would take, Lord, this passage. And Lord, would you draw from it out, Lord, something that would speak to our heart. Something that we need to hear. And so, Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. We've all heard the phrase, absence makes the heart grow what? Fonder. Meaning somehow when you are apart from someone you love, your heart grows deeper in love with them. Many can attest to this being true. If you were at marriage group on Friday evening, you heard the love story of a young Samuel moving away to college in Boston while young Krishana stayed locally and went to school in Pomona. And in their story, absence made the heart grow what? Fonder. And then we also heard that story about the legal document that separated two lovebirds for an entire month, although although the judge wanted three years. And once again, absence made the heart grow fonder. The window made the heart grow fonder. Anyways, absence made the heart grow fonder. But there are also instances where distance doesn't make the heart grow fonder. In fact, sometimes distance makes the heart more bitter. And distance makes the heart more angry. 
This morning, if you're taking notes, the title of this morning's message is Absence Makes the Heart Grow, what? Bitter. Not fonder sometimes, but bitter. In our text this morning, there's so much that has led to this passage. The past couple of weeks, have, we've taken a look at the two of the most painful situations that a person can talk about. Two weeks ago, we dealt with the subject of rape. David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Then two years passed, and the anger from that event ate away at another family member named Absalom. Absalom was the half-brother of Amnon and the full brother of Tamar. During those two years, Absalom kept silent while sheltering Tamar in his house. Then last week, we saw how that anger turned into murder. Absalom sought to avenge his sister's rape by having his brother Amnon murdered. Now listen, after the assassination, Absalom fled to Geshur, to the house of his grandfather, and he hid there for three years. Would you go with me real quick to chapter 13? Take a look at verse 38. It says in verse 38, after Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. And then jump with me to chapter 14, verse 1. It says, the king's heart longed for Absalom. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. Absalom murders Amnon. Then he runs away to grandpa. He stays with grandpa for three years. And I want you guys just for a second to think about what must have been going through David's mind and what must have been happening in David's heart during those three years. We're told in verse 39 that David longed to go to Absalom. So during those three years that his son's away, there was this longing in David's heart to go and just get his son. In fact, in chapter 14, verse 1, we're told that David longed again for Absalom. Think about the waves of emotion going on in our text. Let's go a step further. Think about the waves of emotion going on within specifically David's heart. There was a part of David that said, I want my son back. Almost like a Mel Gibson scene, right? Give me my son back, okay? But I want my son back. He's gone. He's gone. He's away. All the while, he also lost another son who's been tragically murdered. He's died. So you have this dad, this father who's grieving. I want my son back, but he's gone. That son was murdered by my other son who's also gone. Then the wave kicks in. I'm so mad at Absalom for what he's done. I hope he stays away. But then the next wave of emotion comes in and says, but I've already lost one son. Maybe I should reconcile with the other. And then another wave kicks in and says, I miss Absalom. I long for Absalom. I want Absalom to come back home. 
pain, distance, loss can bring about a roller coaster of emotions. And I'm sure that David felt every climb, every drop, and every turn within this story. I want you guys to notice, though, that something very interesting happens as we continue on in our text. In chapter 14, in verses 1 through 21, there's a conversation that David has, and we're not going to get into it this morning, but David has a conversation with this woman from Tekeo. And it's through this conversation with this woman that she helps David make the following statement in verse 21. Go, go, go back with me there. So after three years of his son being gone, David makes a statement after that conversation. Verse 21, he says, go bring back the young man Absalom. Go bring back my son. Joab, go. Joab was one of David's right-hand men, and so he says, Joab, I want you to go, verse 23, to Geshur and bring him back home. Bring him back to Jerusalem. You keep reading with me, verse 24. It says, but the king said, when he comes back, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went, he came home, he came back to Jerusalem. It says he went to his own house, but he did not see the face of the king. Jump to verse uh, 28 with me. It says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. So well, let's do some math real quick this morning. It's now been seven years since Tamar has been raped. So Tamar's raped. Then there's two years of silence, right, where everybody kind of swept it under the rug. David didn't talk about it. Absalom and Amnon didn't talk about it, neither good nor bad. They just kind of pretend that it didn't happen. There were those two years of silence. Then after the two years of silence, there was the murder, right? Brother kills brother. After the murder, there was then the three years of hiding where Absalom goes and stays with grandpa and stays out of Jerusalem. So now we're at two plus three. Now we're told here in verse 28 that Absalom is back in Jerusalem, but now for two more years, he doesn't see the king's face. So you have two years of silence, three years of hiding, two years of not seeing the king's face. So it's been seven years since the initial action, the action that stirred all this up. It also means that it's now been five years since the murder of Amnon. And it's been five years since David has seen his son Absalom. Or you can say that it's been now five years since the father has been with either of his sons. Five years, that, that, that's a long period of time to go without seeing your boys. There's, there's not even a mention of tomorrow anymore in the story, but there's been five years of distance between father and sons. So according to verse 28, Absalom is allowed back into Jerusalem, but listen, he's not allowed back into the king's life. I think this is important to know. He's allowed back into the city, but he's not allowed back into the king's life. As difficult and tragic as the entire situation has been, 
I'm sure there's a part of us that wants to see reconciliation in this story. Why? Because we've been there before. Every single one of us at some point has most likely faced alienation or separation from someone that we care about, from someone we love. Specifically, someone who might even be blood. And so there's that human side of us because we've been there that reads this story and says, can you guys just reconcile? It's been five long years. There's been tragedy in the midst of those five years. Who knows where tomorrow is? There's a young lady still hurting in this entire situation. Can we somehow eventually see reconciliation in this story. I don't know if you've ever been a part of something like this where you've watched it from the outside, but there's that part of you that wants to grab both sides. You want to grab this one by the neck. You want to grab this one by the shirt and you want to bring them together. You want to say, talk it out. Love each other against the scene. There's always that one side that refuses Several years ago, Christine and I went through this with some of our very close friends at that time. There was a, a couple who was in our wedding, and we were in their wedding. And our children were friends with their children. And out of nowhere to us, they decided to get divorced. And although it wasn't our marriage, it hurt. It hurt really bad. We hurt for him. We hurt for her. We especially hurt for their children. Now, about a year later after their divorce, both of them were at one of their children's uh, birthday party. It was the first time that we saw them together in the same place. And we saw them around each other for the first time since the divorce. And there was a part of both Christine and I that wanted to go up to them grab them by the shirt, drag them together, and say, would you reconcile? Would you forgive? Would you repent? Reconcile. Reconcile. We wanted to shout work on the relationship. But in that situation, at least one of the sides was unwilling to reconcile. And over the years, we've watched them go their separate ways. We've seen their children, their, their children go through what it looks like when mommy and daddy won't reconcile. And it's just been this painful thing to watch from a distance. When I read this text, everything in me is screaming, David will reconcile with Absalom. Oh, I, I know what happened. I know there's pain. I know he took out or assassinated or murdered, whatever phrase you want to use. I know he killed his brother. But you could see the longing in David's heart for his son. And everything in you screaming, would you go and be reconciled? Let me say this this morning, reconciliation between two parties where the relationship has been fractured. Reconciliation is a very biblical thing. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Would you write this down? Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, bear with each other and forgive one another, or in other words, reconcile with one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so what Paul is writing to the church in Colossae here in Colossians chapter 3, he's saying, hey, if among you, if among the brethren or the sisterhood or whatever you want to refer to as among Christians, if there are people where there's grievances, where there's bitterness, where stuff has happened, he says, would you bear with each other? Would you forgive? Would you be reconciled to one another if there are grievances? And then he goes and he drops the bombshell. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. He says, I also want you to remember that at one time you and I were alienated from God, separated from him because of our sin. There was a time when our relationship with God the Father was fractured because of sin. He says, and God has forgiven us of our sin. He's reconciled with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, forgive as the Father forgave you. So just when you say it's too big, too much has happened, there's a whole lot of stuff all mixed in there, where forgiveness is not possible. He reminds us, he says, forgiveness is always possible because you've been forgiven. And you were messed up. You were separated from him. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Would you write this down? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 it says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Or in other words, make every effort to be reconciled to everyone. And to be holy, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so the author of Hebrews says, hey, as much as is within our power, we on our end, remember there, there's two parties here, as much as is on your end, on your side, you one side of the party, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Be reconciled. Why live in hostility? If you have to have a difficult conversation, go have a difficult conversation. If you need to drop your pride and ask to be forgiven, drop your pride and ask to be forgiven. If it's been five years, make your way. If you've put up the door and put up the wall and I want nothing to do with you, he says, let the Lord knock down the wall. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Question this morning, is there a relationship that's been strained for two years, five years, seven years, and maybe God has called you to reconcile. I don't know the relationship. The person next to you might not know the relationship. Even your spouse might not even know what's going through your mind right now. 
but between you and the Lord, is there a relationship that's been strained? And the Lord's calling you to reconcile. It's funny, I recently was reconciled to my, to my dad, and I didn't even know we need to be reconciled. It, it, it was kind of funny. The night of my mom's funeral, or my mom's viewing, we, um, we had open casket, and we're there. And my dad said to, um, he said to me, because I was a pastor, he said, go up there and say something. And so I was like, okay. And, but most of our family that was there was, you know, they were Mexican, only spoke Spanish. So I go, you want me to go do it in Spanish or in English? Because if it's in Spanish, it's going to be a disaster. You know, he's like, oh, just, just, just go do it in English. So, you know, some of them know English. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go up there. But right before I went up, my dad goes and grabs the mic. And he goes up and he says, hey, you know, muchos, you know, gracias and all this stuff. And, and he says, you know, this is, this is my mijo. This is my son, Randy. And he goes and he says something to the effect of, yeah, you know, you, most of you don't know him. You know, he's my other son. I'm, I'm, I'm a legit son, but I mean, he said, this is my other son. I'm like, well, what do you mean your other son? You know, you know, I have all my sons, you know, and then I have Randy. I'm like, okay, where's this going? He goes, on to, he goes on to say, you know, my son left our religion when he was 14 years old. I, we grew up in a Catholic home. I got saved in Christianity at 14. And so he says, my son left us, left our religion, you know, when he was 14 years old. And so for the past 25 years, I've been mad at him. And, you know, he's my son, but not my son. You know, I'm like... This is my mom's funeral, homie, like, relax. But, you know, so, you know, and so he goes, but, but now I'm letting him back in, you know, and, and, and he's coming back, and he, um, it, it, it just, it was very weird. It was like I was coming out of the closet for something I was never in the closet before. But, but it, it was one of those things where he's here, and he's coming, and, and he's among us now, and it, it was, I don't know, it was very weird. But I, I was standing there like, I thought we were cool. You know, I, I, I didn't even know this was going on, but it was, it was a good moment. You know, it was a weird, but it was good. But in that moment, there was this reconciliation, I guess on his end, that was taking place where he was finally embracing Randolph the Christian, Randolph the pastor, not Randolph, the guy that betrayed the family religion or abandoned his God when he was 14. And then he started talking about how I had, I, you know, I, I'm now back in the faith. I'm like, homie, I've been in the faith for 25 years, but he's now back in the faith. And, and it, was, it was so weird. But for him, it was this moment of reconciliation. And I'll be honest with you guys, as awkward as it was and as blindsided as I was, it actually has been really good for our relationship. You know, that moment and him saying whatever he needed to say in that moment was actually good for him. And the relationship that I desired for 40 years of my life with my dad, somehow through that public whatever that was, somehow it's, it's brought the two of us a little bit closer together. Reconciliation. You know, on your end, you might not even realize how bitter you are, how angry you are. 
You may not even realize all the stuff that's built up within you. And yet there might be a relationship that God is calling you to reconcile. Just go. And it might even sound weird. And it might not even make sense for the other person. But there's something good about being reconciled. Keep keep reading with me, verse 29. It says, then Absalom, we're going to add that to the book, by the way, Alex, okay? Then Absalom sent for, for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. So after two years of no relationship with his father, and with his father, specifically the king, Absalom sends helpers to Joab and says, let's meet. I can't get a hold of my dad, but I'm going to go to my dad's right-hand guy, and my dad's right-hand man can most likely connect me back to my father. And so twice, Absalom reaches out to Joab and says, let's talk. And twice, David's right-hand man, Joab, rejects Absalom's request to meet Remember, Joab was the one that initially went to Geshur and brought um, Absalom back to Jerusalem. And so there was a relationship there. I could picture Absalom saying, you went, you brought me back, and now you won't meet with me? Now, 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 Now you're shunning me? One thing that you could give Absalom credit for, as we keep reading, was that he was a persistent guy. Read verse 30. It says, then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. So this is the thought that comes to Absalom's mind. Joab won't meet with me. I tried twice now to schedule an appointment with him, and he continues to ignore me. So he goes, he looks, and he says, but his field, his barley field is right next to mine. I know something that will force Joab to talk to me. So what he does is he has has his people go and set Joab's field on fire. This wasn't just a up in flames sort of moment. This was a barley field. Or in other words, go and set Joab's livelihood on fire. The thing that made him money. Now let me give you a quick example. Let's say I wanted to talk to Isaac, but Isaac refuses to talk to me. And so I reach out to Isaac. I say, hey, I want to help with the electricity next week, you know, man. But, and Isaac's like, I want to talk to you. And then I said, no, no, but I really want to help. But Isaac still won't talk to me. Let me ask you a question. How could I get Isaac's attention? Oh, I know. Some of you guys are going to see it after service. I'll set his Octomax van on fire. I'm going to go find the big old Octomax van with all the tools and the hammers and the blue painter's tape, and I'm going to go and I'm going to set that thing on fire. Guess what? I'm going to have Isaac's attention, right? I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. Oh, Octomax is on fire. Okay, listen, that would work. Or let's take it a step further. I want to talk to Anthony. I want to talk to Arlen. Both of these guys are reliant for their livelihood upon their computers. So 
Anthony, Arlen, can I talk to you guys? No. Can I talk to you guys? No. Okay, well, I'll hack into your, com your computer and I'll virus you, you know, and so now you'll talk to me. Or Alex and Marcel, you know, I'm, can I talk to you? No. Can I talk to you? No. Okay, I'll go over to your studio and I'll burn all your printers. I mean, this is what... This is what's going on here. So this isn't just, oh, he set a little fire in the field. He's gone, and he goes to his livelihood, and he sets it on fire. This will get Joab's attention. This will be the equivalent of taking Joab's cash and burning it. If you were to go and find someone's cash and burn it, you'd have their attention. Verse 31. Well, it worked. It says, then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, why your servants set my field on fire? Oh, good to see you, Joab. I thought you weren't available. Now, you, you know, you finally got my message. Verse 32, it says, Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me if I were still there. Listen, Joab, why did the king bring me back to Jerusalem if he's going to ignore me? You see, for the past two years, I've been here, I've been waiting, yet he won't let me see his face. He won't meet with me in person. And then he takes it a step further. He says, it would have been better if for these last two years you just left me where I was. At least when I was in Geshur, I was around family who talked to me, who would acknowledge me. Here, I can't see my dad. He continues to ignore me. Continue verse 32. It says, now then, I want to see the king's face. I've come back to Jerusalem to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. What Absalom is saying is he's saying, let's end this. Either let me live as his son and we reconcile the relationship. Or if he feels that I must die for Abner's death, let him put me to death. But let's not let this thing linger. Let's not play this game where we're just avoiding each other. Let's either reconcile or kill me, one or the other. But there's a big reason. There's a giant elephant in the room here that's not being talked about. I personally believe that one of the reasons David refuses to meet with his son was because David, and we talked about this last week, David wasn't a perfect man. David wasn't a perfect king. And David wasn't a perfect father. And so David remains silent. He remains hidden. I believe because of some of the things that he's done in his past. Remember when David refused to deal with the rape? David remained silent. You see, it was possible that David wouldn't talk. David remained silent because he, David, had also taken a woman who was off limits. 
Bathsheba should have been off limits. She was married to Uriah, and yet David still went to the woman who was off limits and took her. His son Amnon, what does he do? He goes to the woman who's off limits, his sister. And what does he do? He still takes her. And what is David? Silent. He's frozen. He can't deal with it because of his own past. Now we come here again. It's possible that David refuses to deal with the murder of Absalom. Guess why? Because David was also guilty of murdering someone. Remember back to the story of Bathsheba. David had an innocent man, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. The husband of Bathsheba murdered. Now everyone's saying, what are you going to do, king? What are you going to do, dad? Your son is a murderer. What are you going to do? And David says, I just, I don't want to see him. Let's just not talk about it. So the thought could be, how could I deal with Absalom when I've been guilty of the same crime? Let's finish verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom. So finally, after five years, father and son are face to face. It says, and he came in, Absalom did, and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And we're told that the king kissed Absalom. After five years, father and son finally meet again. And let me say this this morning, on the surface, it looked like a beautiful reunion. On the surface, it looked like reconciliation was happening. Reunited, and it felt so good, right? They, they, they hug, they kiss, everything is just perfect on the surface. But beneath the surface, there's still a lot of problems. There's still a lot of issues. Let's go back to the title of our message this morning. Absence had made the heart grow bitter. Absence had made the heart grow bitter. After seven years, it's been seven years since his sister was raped and nothing was done. Absence had made the heart grow bitter. It's been five years since he murdered his brother. Absence has made the heart grow bitter. It's been two years since he was brought back to Jerusalem, and he's been ignored and shunned. And guess what? Absence has made the heart grow bitter. On the surface, it looks like a beautiful reunion. Underneath the surface, there's all sorts of bitterness. There's all sorts of hate. Let me remind you guys of something. After the rape of Tamar, where did Tamar go? She didn't go back to David's house. Where'd she go? She went to Absalom's house. And she lived in Absalom's house. And so every day, Absalom saw the pain. He saw the, the weeping. He saw this, this devastated woman. And then years pass. And he never sees it dealt with or, or the issue. He never sees any sort of justice. 
And it just continues to get more bitter. More bitter. There's one thing I want to talk about before we're done this morning. Is I want, you, I want you guys to notice Absalom is remorseful. And Absalom is emotional. But there's no record of Absalom being repentful. Go, go, go back to verse 33. It says, so Joab went to the king, told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom. Absalom comes. He bows his face down to the ground before the king. And then they have a nice hug and brace and kiss and everything else. These are all signs of remorse. These are all signs of emotion. But what's missing is repentance. There's no sign of repentance. In fact, when we get into chapter 15 next Sunday morning, you're going to know that there is no repentance. There's remorse, there's emotion, but there's not repentance. Would you go with me over to Luke chapter 17? We're going to finish here this morning. Luke chapter 17. There's something Jesus says in Luke chapter 17 that lets us know that when there's some sort of error or sin or offense that's been committed, that there needs to be more than remorse and emotion. There's something Jesus said. Take a look at verse 3. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. We'll finish here this morning. These are Jesus' words. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you. Let's stop there. If your brother or sister hurts you. If your brother or sister wrongs you. If your brother or sister does something to inflict pain upon you, rebuke them. Address it. Talk about it. Correct it. And notice what Jesus says in verse 3, and if they repent, not if they come crying, not if they come remorseful, not if they come emotional, if they repent, if there's repentance, not if there's tears, not if there's emotion, not if there's this dramatic scene if they repent, what does it say? Forgive them. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he says, if they repent, be reconciled to them. He doesn't say, if they cry, be reconciled to them. If it gets all emotional in that place, be reconciled to them. Repent. Repent. You guys can close your Bibles. We're almost done this morning. It's the same thing for us. How many people have emotionally come to the Lord and cried, fell on their face? Oh, Jesus, I need you. Oh, Jesus, forgive me. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. But there's been no repentance in their life. You see, part of coming to the Lord is not just asking for forgiveness of sin. Part of coming to the Lord is then, after asking for forgiveness, turning from your sin, right? Repenting of your sin. Turning, going the other direction. 
It's the same in the principle of forgiving someone. If they repent, if there's a change of direction, if they're willing to abandon and turn their back on the very offense that that has hurt you, then forgive them. Forgive them. This morning, I know I said the past two weeks have been very difficult topics, but I'm pretty sure for some of us, this has also been a difficult topic, except for the Optimax jokes. You guys, you guys like that one. But other than that, I'm pretty sure it's kind of been, for some of us, a pretty heavy one. Because it's dealing with our heart. It's dealing with stuff that has hurt us. And my prayer is that if someone's willing to repent, that we'd be willing to reconcile. And I I don't say that lightly because I'm pretty sure that some of you have been hurt in ways that are beyond being able to talk about. And maybe that reconciliation might not even be face-to-face or in person, but maybe that reconciliation might simply be you freeing yourself and letting it go so it doesn't drain you every day, so that it doesn't consume you every thought, so that it's not the last thing you think about when you go to bed and the first thing you think about in the morning, even for yourself, so that the bitterness doesn't poison you. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you once again, Lord, for difficult passages like this one. But Lord, passages that we so desperately need to hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would take something from this message, a verse, a phrase, a point, an illustration, that there would be something in this message that each and every one of us would then be able to, by your spirit, discern that that was for us, that that was for us to apply, that that was a place for us to forgive, that that was a relationship that we need to be reconciled in. I pray that there's something in there for us this morning that we can put application to. So, Lord, we love you. And God, before we even go into worship, back into worship in our last song, I thank you for forgiving us. Lord, when we were dead in our trespasses, alienated from you, walking in darkness, God, wanting nothing to do with you, but you loved us. And when we were willing to repent, Lord, you forgave us and you washed us clean and you've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, you are a forgiving God. I pray that we would be forgiving people. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's all stand.